Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Hannah. I'm Saruti. And we are Red Handed, the podcast that jumps headfirst into all manner of macabre madness with thoroughly inappropriate enthusiasm. We cover everything from big time serial killers and those you may never have heard of to hauntings, possessions, disturbing mysteries, bizarre whodunits, and basically anything that tickles our creepy fancy. Follow us on everything at Red Handed the Pod. And listen now on Stitcher and iTunes. So join us and prepare for scares. On July 17, 1975, twin gynecologists Cyril and Stuart Marcus were found dead in their upscale Manhattan apartment, surrounded by decaying chicken parts, rotten fruit, and empty pill bottles. The rise and precipitous fall of the doctors was the inspiration for David Cronenberg's 1988 film Dead Ringers, starring Jeremy Irons as both of the identical twins. This is based on a true crime. Hello, everyone. My name is Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. This week's case is not quite a true crime. Um, it's more of a a pair of mysterious or maybe just really tragic deaths. But I was just coming back from a big trip, and I wanted to watch, you know, a good movie. Not to say that most true crime movies aren't good, but this was just one I was really excited about because it's a David Cronenberg film. I had found it when I was looking up um, horror movies based on true stories. And um, I had really loved Videodrome, which David showed to me a couple years ago. And you know, it was a little weird and I was in a little bit of a weird mood. And I said, let's watch Dead Ringers. Let's do Dead Ringers. So I actually knew very little about the story that it was based on. And it was a really interesting one to research. I was intrigued when I started reading about it by the twin aspect of both the movie and the story that inspired it. Um, So while reading about true crime, I've come across quite a few stories involving twins that usually have these sort of eerie psychological aspects. So one probably most people, most true crime listeners have heard of is uh, Sabine and Ursula Erikson. These were uh, the Swedish twins who were suffering from folly adieu when they both ran out into traffic on a very busy road and were hit by cars assistance came and they just kept trying to run into traffic. One of them was hospitalized. The other one was actually not severely injured and ended up being released from police custody and immediately, um, well, the next day, uh, went and stabbed someone to death completely unprovoked. Wow. <laughs> so so that was, you know, a crazy one that you might have heard on My Favorite Murder. <laughs> um, and the other one is the case of June and Jennifer Gibson. So these twins are frequently known as the silent twins. Um, they would only speak with each other and they had developed their own language after being bullied pretty severely at school. They were extremely close and when they were separated, they would become catatonic. They were admitted to a mental hospital 
after committing several crimes, including arson. And eventually the girls decided that one of them must die for the other to live a normal life. And Jennifer agreed to be the sacrifice. And shortly after that, she died mysteriously of a sudden heart inflammation and no drugs were found in her system. And after that, June actually went on to to live normally. So kind of a weird, creepy case. It's been covered by a couple podcasts, too. <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah, that's really fascinating, especially the own language aspects of it. But also it's like kind of the mysterious death and then June has normal life. Yep. And the mysterious death kind of ties into this case that we're going to talk about right now. Yeah, so the case we're discussing today is the case of Cyril and Stuart Marcus, identical twin gynecologists. They were at the height of their profession before their parallel addictions destroyed their reputations, which eventually led to their deaths just days apart in their shared Manhattan apartment. Their story was highly fictionalized in a novel called Twins by Barry Wood and Jack Giesland, which served as inspiration for the David Cronenberg film Dead Ringers, which we'll be talking about in detail a little later. So uh, before we get into the details of the case, we'd like to give a quick shout Shout out to At Last Hometown on Instagram, who got the weekly challenge correct. And also thank you for the five-star review on iTunes. We really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, he's been um, great, really interacting a lot. And he has a podcast that he's working on that's about um, disasters and the end of the world in popular media. So um, last I heard, he's still working on episode one, but we're really excited to um, check that out when it's up. So thank you again, At Last Hometown. Yeah, thanks. So Cyril and Stuart Marcus were born in Binghamton, New York on June 2nd, 1930 to Dr. Jack and Anna Marcus. Stuart was born first, just minutes apart from his younger brother, and they were delivered by Dr. Alan Guttmacher, a twin himself, who would later act as their mentor. Guttmacher was an expert on twins, and he wrote, quote, All separate identical twins may be regarded as monsters who have successfully escaped the various stages of monstrosity. And he warned that twins needed to be careful of, quote, slipping back into monsterhood through psychic conjoinment i love that right i feel like there's no way that david cronenberg didn't read that before oh, that, making yeah. dead ringers <laughs> um it pretty much encapsulates um yeah, what, only, what I, happens which we'll get into later yeah, i can only imagine the uh, imagination going wild with that particular quote so the marcus twins were inseparable growing up they had the same friends they went to the same college they joined the same fraternity, they went to the same medical school, and they even shared the same cadaver and anatomy class. The twins graduated with high honors from New York University at Upstate Medical Center in 1954. The twins took internships and residencies together at Mount Sinai Hospital, and they both joined the Army, and both also became a chief of obstetrics and gynecology at Army hospitals. Also, they were both once staff at Lenox Hill Hospital. Yeah. So a lot of... A lot of uh, <laughs> Yeah. The commonalities there. Yeah, the, uh, was it the twins that do everything together, stay together, and then eventually die together? Exactly. Yeah. So there was a brief period of time during their careers where the twins were separated. Um, this was actually at age 28. Um, Cyril accepted an offer for residency at Mount Sinai Hospital, and his brother Stuart was really angry that Cyril had you know, essentially cut the cord between them by accepting this offer. So he ended up accepting a residency at a hospital in Stanford, Connecticut, um, about 50 miles away. However, it seems that they did make up quickly because uh, Stuart would often drive down on weekends to visit his brother. It was also around this time that the twins reportedly developed their um, really awful habit of switching identities. So the boys would go on double dates with their girlfriends 
exchange their girlfriends without the girls knowing and then um, go home and have sex with them. So afterwards, they would tell the girls about it. And often these girls refused to believe them. The brothers looked and sounded so similar that they could fool even their significant others. So by the way, that's rape. (laughs) Um, So all you guys out there with identical twins, don't do that shit. That's terrible. (laughs) And if you ever have a genie grant you wish, don't wish for that either. Yeah, no. So the twins, after this happened, they would uh, enjoy comparing notes about their experiences. So this ended in 1960 when Cyril met and fell in love with a Manhattan socialite named Corinne Stein. And Stort initially had begged his brother to remain single, but um, eventually at least came around enough to be best man at their lavish wedding ceremony. A year prior to this marriage, Cyril had accepted a very generous offer from New York Hospital Cornell to join their staff as a clinical assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology. But as a stipulation, he said that the hospital also had to hire Stuart in the same position. So once the the twins were working together, they very quickly rose to prominence in their fields. They were determined to achieve immortality as pioneers in the field of infertility treatment. In 1967, they co-authored a textbook called Advances in Obstetrics and Gynecology. Um, This was published to great acclaim. And in addition to their work at the New York Hospital, they also had a very profitable Park Avenue practice. So throughout this time, their clientele continued to grow not only in numbers, but also in status. And they gained a really positive reputation among the wealthy Manhattan elite ladies. And they also achieved, with the publication of their textbook, international fame, essentially, in the medical world. This was a time where doctors were finding great fame with their innovative research. And I guess these two were able to really take advantage of that. Yeah, they were clearly incredibly smart and incredibly talented. (laughs) But even before really what could be considered their downfall, they did not have a spotless reputation. Um, So Dr. Joseph Ravinsky, he was the chief resident in gynecology at Mount Sinai Hospital, um, where they had both worked briefly. Uh, He said of the twins, quote, they were arrogant, resentful of criticism, and disobedient of orders. And there were also some pretty bizarre stories that came out of their private practice. Um, Barbara Jones was a nurse who was hired by Cyril in 1965. And although he told her that he had a brother, he did not tell her that they were twins. And he um, purposely let her believe in her first few weeks of working there that he and his brother were the same person. So she would get really shocked, you know, when one would leave the room and the other would appear suddenly... Yeah, she thought, I don't know, they were magic, but... um, (laughs) Magic, magic men. Yeah. I'm a magic Magic gynecologist. And, you know, that can maybe be harmless, right? Eventually, after a couple of weeks, she saw them in the same room and kind of called him out on it. And she did eventually learn to tell the twins apart. So uh, Stuart, she said, had a slightly better physique and Cyril's voice was slightly higher. And once she could tell them apart, she started to notice quite a few occasions where one twin would begin a gynecological exam and the other would come in and finish it. And the patient would be totally unaware that she was 
being seen by two doctors, which is also not cool. <laughs> yeah, so identical <laughs> twin male gynecologists also don't do this. Yeah, that's why I don't see male gynecologists. Yeah. Well, among other reasons, not because I think they all have twins, obviously. But there's a certain amount of trust, I think, that you build, especially with your gynecologist. That's someone who really, you know, sees you at your most vulnerable. And it just really weirds me out, the idea that you would be seen by someone that you think is your doctor that's not your doctor. So true crime reporter Linda Wolf also had a strange experience with one of the twins during this period, which she described in her book, The Professor and the Prostitute. She wrote that upon hearing the news of the twins' deaths, quote, like many people, I was shocked by the information. Two things contributed to my astonishment. One was the men's twinship, the doubleness that had given them a mutual birth date and now a mutual death date as well. Another was the men's prominence. They had been among New York City's most well-known obstetrician gynecologists. But if I was shocked, I was at the same time not surprised to hear of the death of the Marcus brothers, for I had known them and had once been a patient of Stuart Marcus. It was back in 1966, a year during which I paid several visits to his office, but then abruptly decided not to continue seeing him. Though he was garrulous and even oddly confiding on one of my first two visits, on my third he got angry about something, I no longer recall exactly what it was, and began to shout and scream at me. My husband was with me at the time, and I remember how, controlling an urge to respond in kind, he turned to me and said, Let's go. This man is obviously crazy. Dr. Marcus seemed not to hear my husband's derogatory remark, though it was made sharply and loudly. He just went on ranting and raving, and we felt that, although the doctor was standing just across his desk from us, it was as if, in effect, he were somewhere else, somewhere very distant. We stood up and left. No doubt it was because of that experience, when I had so clearly perceived the gynecologist's distance from life, from reality, that I wasn't altogether surprised to hear of his and his brother's peculiar death. Indeed, a part of me wondered how anyone that disturbed and provocative had managed to function, cope, survive as long as he had. That story kind of stood out to me, um, mostly because of the year. So, you know, when doing the research and reading about what eventually befalls the twins, you think of things kind of starting in the early 1970s. And this was 1966. So this was kind of as they were rising to prominence. His patient had this bizarre experience kind of makes you wonder what was going on before their addictions yeah absolutely it, it definitely seems like one of those um like you said on the rise you know timing of their career that it all started or if that was just like sounds to me like untreated mental health yeah. issues you know which can definitely be genetic and you have these two brothers sharing the same genetics you know we'll talk about it a little later it's just unfortunate it reached the point that it did but before we get to the bad stuff, let's talk a little bit more about um, their successes. So their practice was extremely successful. The twins were able to afford renting two luxury apartments on Sutton Place overlooking the East River. Cyril and his wife moved into an apartment on the 10th floor and Stuart moved into an apartment on the 12th floor. They also bought a summer house in the Hamptons where they would all spend weekends together. However, in 1968, uh, Cyril and Corinne's relationship began to unravel. They had two young daughters together, but work had kept Cyril away from his family, and eventually Corinne asked for a divorce. 
Um, after this, Cyril sank into a deep depression, often staying in bed all day and refusing to see any of his patients, who were instead seen by Stuart. And during this time, Cyril also would continue to talk about his family to his friends and to his patients as though nothing were wrong, pretending that he still was living with his wife and daughters. And two years prior to the divorce, uh, Cyril had developed a back problem that led to him taking painkillers. And once he went through the divorce, he began taking even stronger painkillers to um, help him cope you know, emotionally rather than physically. He wrote these prescriptions for himself. So he was taking an amphetamine, a dextrin, which caused euphoria during the day. And then he would take barbiturates to sleep at night. His drug use led to erratic behavior and left Cyril unfit to treat patients. So his brother Stuart, who had already kind of developed the habit, you know, of sneaking in and switching with his brother, um, he began to impersonate Cyril with a lot of his patients. And these patients had no clue that they were actually being treated by Stuart and Cyril would occasionally still come into the practice. And, you know, when he was there, it was not good. This is actually uh, the nurse that um, we talked about earlier, Barbara Jones. She ended up quitting after Cyril threw a sterilizer full of medical instruments at her. So it's like the added stress of Stuart impersonating Cyril. It's like one of these awful loops of just, like you said, mental health issues where they're bouncing their problems against each other. Yeah, it absolutely seems like, you know, although they had problems earlier, this is really where that downward spiral starts and it goes fast. Which by the early 70s, Stewart also began using barbiturates, although he was using them to a lesser extent. Hospital colleagues and patients started noticing that things were amiss with Cyril, who had lost a lot of weight and he no longer cared about his appearance, even though his reputation was for being extremely well-dressed. When asked about his brother, Stewart denied that anything was wrong or, you know, made up excuses. And in 1972, Cyril took an overdose of barbiturates. His brother and a friend had broken into his apartment and found him unconscious. When a concerned neighbor, Yvonne Green, saw them and asked what was wrong, Stuart shouted at her, fuck off, my brother is ill. Yep. So, yeah, that's... Yeah, and it's denying a problem, denying help. It's not good. In fact, on one notable occasion, Sir was performing surgery in the operating theater, and during the complicated operation, apparently went berserk and ripped the anesthetic mask from his patient and placed it on his own face. So Stuart was brought in to take over the surgery, but appeared to be just as out of it as his brother. So Cyril was ordered to take a three-month leave of absence and to seek psychological counseling, but was allowed to return to his medical duties before long. And that scene um, is kind of pivotal in Dead Ringers also, that I'm sure some of the more famous screenshots when he's um, scrubbing up in those the red scrubs, um, it's just really powerful. <laughs> yeah, so after that, the Board of Censors of the Medical Society of the County of New York received so many complaints about Cyril that they brought he and his brother in, but the brothers were both belligerent and refused to acknowledge that anything was wrong. Meanwhile, their practice declined dramatically. The office had become filthy and the refrigerator filled with urine samples that were never sent for analysis, and their patients began to change doctors in droves. The twins also began skipping their shifts and canceling appointments at the New York hospital, which may have been preferable to what happened when they actually showed up. 
Nurse Kathy Rowland was assigned to assist Cyril on a circumcision and witnessed him attempting to cut the foreskin with the handle of a bladeless knife. Yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> no. Fortunately, it was the... Yeah, it was the... Yeah, <laughs> at least... Work. Yeah, actually, maybe it's better that way. Yeah. It's oh. like, well, still, I'm Dr. Nick. Um, no, I know that it's too bad that it took patients, you know, being harmed. I mean, they're lucky that patients weren't killed. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> because they're turning a blind eye to what were once their star star gynecologists. So by 1975, it was well known among the staff at New York Hospital that the Marcus twins were no longer capable of functioning as doctors and that they also posed essentially a hazard to patients. They hardly came into work anymore, instead spending all of their time getting high on barbiturates in Cyril's 10th floor apartment. In the six months leading up to March of 1975, the twins admitted only 18 patients into the hospital. And normally, over that kind of time frame, they would have been admitting hundreds of patients. Um, and shortly after that March of 1975, they stopped admitting patients entirely. Uh, one of Cyril's longtime patients, uh, Susan Wright, learned about the drug problem from a nurse when she showed up at their private practice for an appointment and the building was closed and locked. And the nurse told Susan about the suspected drug problem, which I think was a little more than suspected at that point. And Susan ended up contacting uh, Cyril's ex-wife, Corinne, asking her whether she knew about her husband's addiction. And she actually learned from Corinne about the divorce. So this was eight years after the divorce. And Cyril had been lying, saying things were fine for that entire time. So, yeah, eight years is a long time for him to have kept up that masquerade. Yep. As the, uh, what's her name, the true crime writer said, he was not living in reality or neither of them were. Yeah. So on June 17th of 1975, Stuart was called to the hospital by one of his patients, uh, Gwyneth Williams, and she had suffered a miscarriage and she was hemorrhaging. So although Stuart told uh, Gwyneth's husband, Eddie, that he would be there within the hour, he didn't show up until three hours later. Stuart could hardly stand and almost fell on Gwyneth multiple times during the examination. Although she was bleeding profusely, uh, Stuart asked her if she felt well enough to go home. And Eddie also witnessed him wiping blood from his hands onto his suit in the middle of the operation to stop the bleeding. Uh, Stuart began complimenting Eddie on his shoes also. And that was finally the point where they stopped it. Stuart was forced to leave the operation and the premises and another doctor took over. Thank God. Yeah. Could you <laughs> yeah. imagine it's like there's an emergency and it's like, oh, nice shoes there. Especially yeah, nice that shoes. kind of emergency. Right. Um, you know, a miscarriage and hemorrhaging. Your emotions are running so high to have your doctor come in and be wiping blood onto his suit. Clearly something is wrong. So it was also in June when Dr. Fritz Fuchs, are you laughing at the name Fritz Fuchs? Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so Dr. Fritz Fuchs, the chief of obstetrics and gynecology at New York Hospital, uh, called the twins into his office and informed them that, uh, surprise, surprise, they would not be reappointed to the staff when their contracts ran out in the beginning of July due to um, their strange behavior and clear problems that they had going on and he was upset at having to let these doctors go because of their you know outstanding reputation prior to this but the twins were apparently very calm at receiving the news 
uh, Dr. Fuchs offered to reconsider their cases if they took medical leave to get their shit together, so to say. Um, But the twins refused. So on July 1st of 1975, their contracts at the hospital ran out. And a few weeks later, neighbors at their apartment building began complaining about a foul-smelling odor emanating from the Marcus's apartment. Gee, I wonder what that could be. (laughs) I'm going to tell you just here in a second. So on July 17th, the bodies of the two men were discovered by a building handyman in their locked apartment. Cyril Marcus was found lying face down across the head of a twin bed. Stuart was found face up on the floor next to a matching twin bed in a different room. And it's believed that Stuart died between July 10th and the 14th. And then Cyril died between the 14th and the 17th. So on July 14th, after Stuart was already dead, Cyril was seen leaving the apartment only to return and then die alongside his brother. According to detectives, the apartment was a pigsty and quote there wasn't an inch of floor that wasn't littered the floor was covered in piles of garbage including more than 100 empty barbiturate bottles which had labels from various drug stores with so many different names of quote patients there was also an armchair full of human feces and it was like the brothers weren't even bothering to use the toilet ew gotta wonder what the smell is now maybe it's not the bodies yeah that's true So Dr. John Pearl of the medical examiner's office uh, said that both bodies were emaciated and that they had severe malnutrition. Although the brothers were nearly six feet tall, Cyril weighed just over 100 pounds and Stuart weighed 115 pounds. That's crazy. Yeah, that's unbelievable for, I mean, just, I I can't even imagine. It's just awful. Even in death, the twins still so closely resembled each other that their toe tags at the morgue were initially misplaced. They were eventually correctly identified using dental records. So their deaths were assumed to be suicidal overdoses at first. However, autopsy tests revealed no trace of barbiturates in either twin. The medical examiner's office concluded that they died from an attempted withdrawal from barbiturates. And in the case of chronic barbiturate addicts, which the twins clearly were, Withdrawal can produce life-threatening seizures and convulsions. Experts question the uh, medical examiner's report, though, because their bodies showed no signs of death by convulsion. There were no bruises, no tongue bites, and no brain hemorrhaging. New tests were performed, and it showed traces of barbiturates in Stewart's body, but not in Cyril's. So Stewart is believed to have died from a barbiturate overdose, but Cyril's death remains a mystery. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of websites do say that um, Cyril's death was a result of withdrawal because barbiturates weren't found in his system. But, you know, it's it's really hard to know without those, uh, the trauma, the bruises, the tongue bites, the brain hemorrhaging. So, yeah, that's the depressing story of the twins, uh, Cyril and Stuart Marcus. So for the discussion, I, um, you know, don't have many questions For you, David, or I guess for myself, but I did want to just uh, talk a little bit about drug addiction among doctors. Um, So drug addiction among doctors is 10 to 15 percent compared to uh, between 8 and 10 percent among the general population. And this epidemic is kind of a combination of um, physician burnout, depression and anxiety, plus really plentiful access to prescription drugs. 
And one reason that this can be such a problem is that prescription drug addiction, particularly among doctors, is treated as more of a crime rather than a disease because, you know, they're the ones essentially committing fraud by writing these prescriptions. And, you know, this was clearly a problem in the 1970s for the Marcus twins, and it's still a problem to this day. And it seems like with the great pressure by hospitals to, you know, see as many patients as you can in a day and the stresses of of the job then and now certainly seems to be a contributing factor. Yeah, it's crazy. I've heard, you know, a little bit just while I was in school from people who were training to be doctors, these insane shifts they're working on top of the fact that their jobs are really treating these people sometimes in life or death situations. It's just so much responsibility I can't even imagine. So, you know, addiction is a disease. It should be treated like a disease, you know, especially by the people who are supposed to know that, the doctors, that they would treat their coworkers as criminals or their staff as criminals for having addiction is, uh, sucks. (laughs) Um, And the other, you know, issue, particularly for Cyril and Stuart Marcus is the fact that they were clearly showing signs that something was wrong and no one stepped in because they had such a stellar reputation. You know, no one wanted to say something is seriously terribly wrong. And it's just unfortunate that, you know, with so many people witnessing their downward spiral, they were not able to get the help that they clearly needed. Right, and they that attempt to self-medicate without really anyone outside of their world because I guess their close relationship and their codependability on each other just I guess meant that they didn't have anyone willing to step up and or step back and and get them at least some advice yeah or be there for them yeah I mean, it seemed like by that time, the only people they had were each other and you know, they just almost fed each other. You know, their addictions fueled each other. Um, so it was just very unfortunate. And the other thing I want to talk about briefly is, um, you know, Cyril's, I guess, mysterious death. So you know, if it wasn't an overdose, if it wasn't withdrawal, then what was it? And not only, you know, why did he die, but why did he return to the apartment? So he left the apartment after Stuart died and went back and then he died. So um, one thing I just wanted to put out there is uh, maybe broken heart syndrome or stress cardiomyopathy. So that's kind of one thing that can happen after a very emotionally stressful event. So something like, you know, his twin brother dying of a drug overdose it was maybe just too much for him to handle. Um, it also reminds me a little bit of you know the silent twins that we talked about in the introduction. It almost seemed like she like willed herself <laughs> to die, thinking that that was you know what she had to do. Um, so also, I just thought it was a weird yeah. kind of coincidence. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And it's also what I guess was ultimately the cause of the demise of Padme after Anakin made her so sad. Oh God, yep just gave up right yep those movies are terrible (laughs) um so just briefly some of the sources for this research so thanks to my new york times subscription i got to read some um, contemporary articles so this 
you know, it happened in New York City. It was a very big deal among the community there because the doctors were so well known. So there were some really interesting um, contemporary articles, including one that, you know, had said, oh, suspected drug overdose. <laughs> so it was kind of interesting reading that and then knowing that eventually they find out that that's not the case, at least for one of the twins. Um, the other source I got a lot of it from is a book by John Glatt called Evil Twins, Chilling True Stories of Twins Killing and Insanity. So I didn't look at any of the other twins, but they had a lot of information about uh, Cyril and Stuart, which I wouldn't say they're evil. Well, I was going to say I wouldn't say they're evil, but then I remember that uh, they would trick each other's girlfriends into sleep with them. So maybe a, a hint of that. Um, definitely something was not okay. Shout out to John Glatt, though, on the title of that book. <laughs> yeah. Should be the name of our next podcast. Talk about nothing but twins. Yeah. Um, We'd run out of stories, though. Yeah, real fast. And the final source, uh, it was horrorfilmcentral.com had a really interesting article called Real World Horror, The Truth Behind Dead Ringers, which I think is a good segue into our discussion of Dead Ringers. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Beverly Mantle. By every scientific measure, they are absolutely the same. They share everything. You haven't had any experience until I've had it too. Bev, you've got to try the movie star. She's unbelievable. Doctor, you've cured me. You mean to say there's two of them? They're twins, dear. I think we should drop her, Bev. You drop her. I'm in love with her. I'll be in love if it does this to you, Kenneth. Doctor, I think there's something wrong with you. Patients are getting strange. What are they? They're working on mutant women. From David Cronenberg, who in The Fly made the fantastic real. Radical technology was required. Something radical is definitely required. Now, David Cronenberg makes reality the ultimate fantasy. Dead ringers. Separation can be a, a terrifying thing. Dead Ringers is the 1988 David Cronenberg-directed film, I guess inspired by the true story of Stuart and Cyril Marcus. But in this case, we have Jeremy Irons performing the dual roles of the identical twin gynecologist Elliot and Beverly Mantle. So it's, in a way, it's a... There will be a lot of similarities between the real-life case that we talked about. And there are some things where David Cronenberg's filmmaker sensibilities kick in and we start to see hints of as chelsea mentioned earlier the video drone-esque elements of his filmography originally titled twins which ended up being released in 1988 as well with arnold schwarzenegger and danny devito a much <laughs> different movie <laughs> oh my gosh really yeah wow yeah they were they're <laughs> who would have thought of that connection not me <laughs> So if you're looking for this at the to rent, 
You could do a double feature, really. It's the darkness of the David Cronenberg film and the lightness of the Ivan Reitman-directed movie. So, yeah, yeah, you got a little bit of a mixture there. (laughs) Sounds like a fun night. Yep. So, really, when we talk about the cast of the film, it's Jeremy Irons as both brothers, and then it's Genevieve Buhold who plays Claire, the, I guess, quote, love interest, or she's an active participant within the proceedings of the film. So... Speaking of Jeremy Irons, who has a standout performance that we'll talk about when we you know, discuss some of the finer points of the movie, he has mentioned in past interviews a couple of actors that were originally approached to play the brothers, and Robert De Niro was one. However, I can't even imagine that. Yeah, well, Robert De Niro turned it down because he was really uneasy with this subject matter. He didn't feel comfortable playing gynecologists, the darkness of the story as well. Really? I think was of a all the factor. things to have an issue with, it was being a gynecologist. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, he's played, you know, the taxi driver and he's, you know, he's yeah. played he's played a lot of roles that are kind of maniacal characters. Yeah. And I he's he he was like, "Whoa, Identical twin gynecologist. That's too high concept <laughs> oh, for me, sir. Uh, another actor considered was William Hurt. And he turned down the part because he said that it was hard enough playing one role. So the idea that portraying two characters was a huge monumental task, which I feel very few actors are really ready to, 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 to do. But Jeremy Irons was so ready (laughs) absolutely he was um there's a lot of discussion for him in terms of getting ready for the role about how he was treated on set and it was actually um originally he was offered two separate dressing rooms so that he could portray each character separately now he ended up turning that down yeah he did internalize a lot of uh, the mannerisms of the of both brothers and also switching up the costumes to have the subtle differences between both uh, Beverly and Elliot to be have some distinction, at least for the audience, if yeah. not the characters in the film. Yeah. So before we start talking about our impressions of the movie, yeah. uh, they just have some more fun trivia because this is such a, I guess, uh, a... It's a role that could be gimmicky yeah. when you think of the idea of one actor playing twins. And I think in the past, the way this had been done was on a lower tech sort of thing where the split screens were more obvious. And in this case, visual effects technology was, you know, it was 1988. They had so many advances and so many visual effects heavy movies coming out that one of the technologies that allow this film to work the way it did was with the motion control rig camera. So Mm -hmm. this allowed both actors to appear seamlessly in scenes where basically a computer controls the camera for one pass with Jeremy Irons portraying one brother and then also performing the second role of the other brother while the camera moves in the exact same movements and then it's overlapped on top of each other. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, and this really technique neat. Yeah, and this technique was perfected by uh, a team uh, it's Ballsmeyer and Everett and they uh, were introduced to Cronenberg uh, to discuss the technology of how to make this film and the logistics around it and there's a good article in Art of the Title where they talk about 
the team and getting these uh, this technology together. And I guess there was an early conversation where they sort of oversold the technique. They said that the camera could be really small and really easy to move. And, and you know, when they got on set, it wasn't quite the case. But yeah. it's still, I think, uh, when you watch the film, it's really incredible how well and how seamless uh, Jeremy Irons acts against himself. I wonder if that's also what they used in uh, The Parent Trap. With Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, yeah, some of that is. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, you, came, you came across that during your research? <laughs> yeah, there's a whole, there's a, after they did this, Back to the Future 2 uh, used it with the multiple Michael J. Fox characters and the multiple, um, you know, his whole family yeah. is all played by him. And then like a couple years later with Multiplicity with Michael Keaton played five clones of himself. They use the same technology. Uh, Nicholas Cage and Adaptation, they did the same sort of technology as well. And then David Fincher utilized it in the social network um, for the... Oh, for the, the those Google. creepy twins. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it led to a lot of twinning yeah. performances after this film. That's really neat. Wow. Yeah. I think I think it's... Yeah. The more you know. Yes, yeah. exactly. And I, and I know. And I, I could probably like keep talking about this, but I'm trying to not talk about the nerdy aspects of it. <laughs> too much uh however i will say one thing i just wanted to mention was that this really wowed audiences at the time uh there was a film that came out the same year which also had a set of identical twins which also used sort of these pioneering techniques however this film rather than starring twin jeremy irons starred twin bet midlers and lily tomlins so what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was a comedy called big business so all right yep so all of that fun technical talk out of the way yeah. let's get into discussing the uh the film itself so chelsea um this was both of our first times seeing dead ringers yeah. and i know we've watched several david cronenberg films together so what did what was your just initial impression of the movie so this was kind of a weird one I enjoyed it while I was watching it, but the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. And especially after reading about the story that it's based on. So we watched the movie before I did any of the research, which was kind of a new experience. Usually I do the research first and then we watch the movie and I've really enjoyed it. I liked you know, reading about the stories, you know, especially the ones that you actually see in the movie so the twins um sharing the corpse in anatomy class and you know the scene as i was mentioning where he rips off the mask during surgery and tries to inhale the anesthetic gas it just you know it's not as weird as i was expecting you know the david cronenberg film that really stands out the most to me that i like the most um, is videodrome which is just bizarre <laughs> um, so this this movie gets progressively weirder which is i think is very fitting for you know the story the true story that you know starts out normal and gets progressively weirder yeah. um so i i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed how kind of seamlessly it goes from just the story of these doctors that you know are not great people and where where their path leads them it feels natural while also being very unnatural yeah i think the the twins relationship but also the relationship with claire like the way they you know they they kind of i guess the drama around 
them switching roles it creates just this tension yeah that's palpable yeah and it's it's you know it's really creepy but i will say and not not to be a spoiler or anything but when she catches on it's like one it's such a smart scene yeah and you get a little bit of that like fist pump a bit when she calls them out on it yeah i really liked her character i know that she's kind of uh the harbinger (laughs) you know she's the one that upsets the dynamic between the twins the one that gets beverly addicted to drugs essentially she's the reason that they eventually meet the fate that they do but i i can't help but like her as a character i think she's really interesting very well acted i think she serves as a really great i don't know if she really serves as a foil i feel like the twins are more foil for each other but she's kind of believable as you know the person that could upset this balance you know the person that could get one of these twins to you know fall in love with her and drive him mad (laughs) well and it's it's refreshing that she's not played by an actor that's really really young she's a mature actor a work she's a working actor in the film Mm -hmm. you know i think a lot of movies maybe when you think of like a jeremy irons love interest would have played a lot younger to his older character i guess really Or, well, the older brothers. <laughs> older by seconds. The other yeah. one. She's just, you know, she's a, a strong character in it and creates a, a dynamic that does, like, kick off that spiral, I guess. Yeah, it's funny thinking about the movie now. I've almost conflated the two twins in my mind, which I guess is maybe the point of it. It's like, even though they are really two distinct characters by the end for some reason i couldn't i can't even tell you which one dies first is it elliot yeah it's if Elliot. beverly does right. the thing with the creepy instruments yeah, yeah. They, they it it does an interesting thing where the movie kind of wants you to cronenberg pulls you along with beverly as the more sympathetic character but he becomes just as guilty as elliot of you know the things that happen in the movie yeah. so you're talking about like when things get kind of weird yeah. in that last the third act yeah those are mostly due to bever bev's yeah. uh actions and there's yeah there's there's that certain if you haven't seen the film jumping into it it doesn't immediately feel like a cronenberg body horror movie but it's but by the the third act i certainly felt his like weird body horror yeah. flourishes I was definitely more horrified, I think, by this movie, by the direction that this movie took compared to Videodrome, where you have, like, actual guns growing out of people's hands. Yeah. <laughs> um, it just, it was really, I think, some of the imagery and some of the events were very deeply disturbing in a way that I could really appreciate. Yeah, and this, I think we were talking about at the time, uh, right after watching it, is how this ended up feeling like one of his transitional films from being the the body horror guy to the more, uh, I guess, drama, mm-hmm. <laughs> directing more drama that where the conflict is a little less like horror movie-esque and it's more uh personal like from it's just it's a drama, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> his, his like, his you know filmography after this 
it's hard to to place in a genre i guess is what i'm saying yeah. it's like before from everything you know he had done the fly two years before mm-hmm. in 86 and his entire filmography before then were horror movies and so dead ringers was to me feels like one of those movies that would be well regard you know all the awards or whatever i mean there there's no supernatural element to this movie right which might be surprising when you think of some of the the imagery that's come out of it but there's really not you know there's these characters are in a mental crisis he has this one creepy dream um there's these so it's beverly is kind of imagining that his patients that he's treating they look like women on the outside but on the inside they're their insides are like monstrous they're monsters on the inside and he gets these gynecological tools made to treat specifically these women and i like the way this is kind of reflecting so his um love interest in the movie one thing they talk about early on is that her uterus is deformed she's like three chambers there so i think it's kind of calling back to that and also just the fact that (laughs) i mean if you've ever been to a gynecologist you know they tools are kind of weird looking they look like they could be used on monsters they're you know they're not i think something that you see very often because kind of a taboo subject for whatever reason um so i i really like that aspect and then you know eventually what you discover what ends up happening is that you know the tools aren't really for women they're for separating him from his brother, Elliot, you know, separating Siamese twins, only they're not Siamese twins, and eventually are used by Beverly on Elliot, and that's how he dies. Yeah, and that descent into Mattis that we talked about mm-hmm. with the real-life brothers and how they became addicted, you know, to, to prescription medication, and all of that acts out in the film as well. Yeah. You get to see that, and you get to see their deterioration the scene where they're eating cake. Oh my god, it just actually makes me want to cry. It's it's heartbreaking. Jeremy Irons does such an amazing job. So, uh, we're just gonna talk just for a minute about the reception of the film because it does deal with such subject matter as you know the late '80s and identical twin gynecologists trading places and you know a lot of complicated stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, what do you have, Chelsea? Um, so, uh, Rita Kempley was reviewing the film for the Washington Post, and she called this film, uh, quote, every woman's nightmare turned into a creepy thriller and said that it was, quote, like slowing down to look at a traffic accident, afraid you might see something. It's really sordid stuff that becomes ridiculous, painful, unbelievable, and tedious. So not... A great review but still kind of on the nose you know even though i enjoyed the film it was not easy to watch for a lot of reasons but i'm very glad that we did watch it yeah definitely i uh i think that's a, yeah that's a good quote that sort of gets the the tone of the film that we were talking about so that's 1988's dead ringers if it's a david cronenberg film that you've skipped over just because maybe it wasn't so body horror it's I pretty body it. horror <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's, it's just it, a different kind of body horror right yeah. so i i recommend it for that not as gooey no but just as little <laughs> yeah i remember as a kid not watching this movie because it was you know it, it <laughs> It was, it was because it was about gynecologists. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Me as an 11-year-old 
after having seen his other movies on TV, this just wasn't for me at the time. Yeah. But as an adult, I, it's a great movie. I yeah. think it's really, really good. Um, I think there's a reason why there's a Criterion edition of this film. So yeah, so check out Dead Ringers. If you're interested in, you know, the story we told about the real life brothers, and then this is this is a, a really interesting adaptation of, of their story. Yeah. And if you do uh, check it out after listening to this, or if you've already seen it and have strong opinions, please let us know what you think. Yeah, and along the lines of Dead Ringers, and since we already talked about The Parent Trap and some other movies that mm-hmm. <laughs> dealt with twins, one movie I'd like to recommend and one that we may uh, revisit that I don't think Chelsea's seen either is Brian De Palma's Sisters. And now Sisters is a 1973 film starring Margot Kidder in the twin roles. Your and, favorite Margot Kidder? Yes, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, it's kind of described as a psychosexual thriller. And, of course, they throw in the Alfred Hitchcock homage, as Brian De Palma does in pretty much every film. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, just to give you kind of the the lowdown, Margot Kidder plays Siamese twins, Danielle and Dominique, who are separated. And when a uh, reporter suspects Dominique of a murder, she becomes ensnared in the sisters' sibling bond. So it's that sounds uh, awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. um you know Brian De Palma's really first horror voyeuristic film, and it features yeah like all the split screen effects that weren't you know not as high tech as what we talked about earlier with the motion control camera. But there's that, and there's bloody birthday cakes, and also uh, you know Exciting. watch out for <laughs> yeah the bloody birthday. <laughs> oh. Yeah, and then also uh, Bernard Herrmann did the score, who also did a lot of Hitchcock's work. So, yeah, check out uh, Brian De Palma's Sisters. It might be a good double feature to watch after watching uh, Dead Ringers. So is that your coming soon for this week? <laughs> it just might be. All right. All right, so Chelsea, what's your now playing? So my now playing for this week is, I guess, kind of unfortunately themed. So if you follow us on Instagram... You might have seen that I went to Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway. Gosh, was that just a week ago? A week ago today? Um, It was, yeah. So I was in New York for a very exciting reason. My uh, sister had her baby and it was a bit of a surprise. It was a week early and I flew out there. I was able to stay there for almost four days. And uh, my parents treated me to a ticket to see Dear Evan Hansen, which... I had just been listening to the soundtrack nonstop for (laughs) about a month. And actually during all of my uh, travels for this trip, I also finally finished watching 13 Reasons Why. And after that weekend, I really can't stop thinking about these two really very, very different takes on modern teen teendom, (laughs) um, the experiences of the modern teenager, um, and also bullying and um, teen suicide. So that's kind of the common theme of both of these stories. <laughs> um, so Darren Hansen was absolutely amazing. If you ever get a chance to see it, go see it. And uh, I'm talking to you, David. Go see it. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll, well, we'll have so, to. You'll get to see it a yeah, second time because yeah. we'll go. Yeah, no, um, I, def- I certainly want to check yeah. it out. 
Um, and the the story in Dear Evan Hansen is kind of just part of what's so amazing. So, um, you know, Ben Platt's performance, really everyone's performances, um, the music is so good. Um, but one thing that really struck me was how differently it treats the the suicide of the one character compared to 13 Reasons Why. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people have been complaining about how uh, suicide is really romanticized in 13 Reasons Why. And after finally watching all of it, I really agree with that, <laughs> I think, to almost kind of a, a dangerous extent. So in 13 Reasons Why, um, the main character, Hannah, kills herself and through this act of suicide, which um, the whole premise of the story is that she recorded tapes about 13 people that she blamed for her suicide. And kind of through her act, she was able to you know, accomplish all of these things that she had really wanted in life. So she's getting revenge on the classmates that had bullied her. She's causing people to regret their treatment of her. And I think the story almost treats suicide as like a means to an end like an effective means to an end or um, something that was inevitable uh, given her situation and I think that's a really dangerous message to send especially because the way the show is advertised you know it's about high school students it seems kind of targeted towards high school students and I was fine watching the show I'm also an adult I would even say I enjoyed the show. <laughs> you know, I, I watched it just straight through to the end, really engrossed in the story, really wanting to know what was going to happen next, cheering for certain characters, getting really mad at other characters. I did fast forward through their very graphic depiction of Hannah's suicide in the last episode. And I <laughs> cannot in good faith recommend the show to anyone. <laughs> Teenagers... Their brains are not fully developed. This is something you come across a lot in, you know, true crime discussions about how we should treat teenage offenders. They, you know, can't really understand, I think, the consequences of their actions to the same extent. And no one should assume that by killing themselves, they're teaching any teenage bully a lesson. I've read many stories about teenagers who were, you know, bullied into suicide and, you know, usually what happens is the same little shits that bullied them are on the like memorial Facebook pages posting awful stuff because like kids are kind of psychopaths, <laughs> um, you know, to a certain extent. And you can hope they grow out of it. A lot of them do. You know, some of them might eventually regret their decisions. But, you know, the best revenge is to live well, right? So the contrast to 13 Reasons Why is um, Dear Evan Hansen, which, you know, it showed the aftermath of suicide, essentially completely separated from the victim of it. Um, Connor Murphy, the boy that commits suicide, barely appears in the play as himself. And the story is really about, you know, the aftermath, particularly the aftermath for his family. And I cried so much <laughs> and so did, I think, most of the people in the theater. It's not emotionally manipulative the way I think 13 Reasons Why is. It's just a really powerful story. And, you know, the message at the end for people like Connor and especially people like Evan, these bullied teenagers, is that, you know, it gets better. And I think that's the message we should be sending. You know, it gets better. 
but the only way it can get better is uh, don't kill yourself. <laughs> so uh, the crisis text line, 741-741, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255, and go see Dear Evan Hansen. Don't watch 13 Reasons Why unless you're a grown-up in a good place mentally. <laughs> then, I mean, sure, it was entertaining enough. Yeah, those are great resources, so mm. thanks for sharing that. All right, what's your coming soon? Or what you're now playing? Well, this is a really tough one to follow because I don't have <laughs> anything nearly as weighty. Uh. Sorry, it's just been on my mind. No, yeah. it's no, it's that's very powerful, and mm. I think that uh, your perspective on those those two shows contrast each other, and it's like, uh, yeah, I see what, see what you mean. Mm. I I will probably not be watching Thirteen no. Reasons Why, <laughs> <Don't>. <laughs> but Evan Hansen hopefully is in the future at some yeah. point. Listen to the soundtrack on Spotify. It's really good. It's so good, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so my now playing, uh, I worked on a couple of drawings while you were away. So uh, I was doing some a little bit of extra work to pass the time. <laughs> you were getting to see babies and our new mm-hmm. niece and all that good stuff. So, yeah, I got one drawing complete and then another one not complete yet. But... They're like one's a cat in the sweater, and then one's a, <laughs> a, a punk rock cat. So, and you can see at least the cat in the sweater on your Instagram yeah, at Lab at, Creature. Yeah, at Lab Creature. So, if you want to see that, that's fine. That's it's cool. awesome. <laughs> While I was doing those, uh, yeah, let me give you the list. The list of movies that I watched. David always loves it when I leave town. He gets to watch so many movies. So I watched the Fright Night documentary. You're so cool, Brewster on a certain streaming platform that we won't mention until they sponsor us. Oh, just, it it was shutter. (laughs) It was shutter. Everyone. It was shutter. I also, that, that was a cool documentary. Anyway, Mm -hmm. I watched death spa, which is an eighties exercise horror movie, which was an exercise horror movie. Is there any other kind of exercise? (laughs) (laughs) Good one. That was fantastically amazing. Yeah. It was bonkers, but it was really good. Uh, followed that up by 976 Evil 2, as you do. <laughs> followed that up by The Stuff, which is an amazing Larry Cohen film. Also followed that up, actually, the I guess the day before you came home, because July 3rd is Return of the Living Dead Day. That's the day that all of it takes place, and I mm. could not resist watching the Blu-ray of that. So I put that on. Your and, favorite you know, movie. Yep. So that's my now play. Hey, what is it? It's not a costume. It's a way of life. Yeah. Is that the line? Did I mess it up very yeah, much? Enough. Close enough. <laughs> Awesome. All right. So now that we talked about my silly movies for my now playing, how about your coming soon, Chelsea? Are we going to have the same coming soon? No, no, no. No, we're not? You're uh, not going to do the new Spider-Man movie? Because I'm going to do the new Spider-Man movie. I already, no, because I mentioned that like three episodes ago. Oh, well, now that's my coming soon because <laughs> uh, we didn't get a chance to watch it over the weekend. Um, my mother and father-in-law were in town and we had a lot of fun, but uh, I think Spider-Man is not quite up their alley, so... We're watching it this week, so not very exciting, but uh, but that's my coming soon. What's yours? I think it's pretty exciting. Yeah. <laughs> coming soon, uh, just here on the podcast, we'd said sisters, right? Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> well, like, no. That was like five minutes ago, and I've already forgotten. <laughs> I mean, you know, it may not be sisters, but it could be. Oh, actually, uh, we're in the mood for blockbusters, maybe Kong Skull Island. Yeah. Rent that. Yeah, I definitely want to see it. I had wanted to see it uh, after all the previews, and we missed it in theaters. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, always good ones. To the popcorn movies are fun to kind of wash away the <laughs> the crime-ridden movies. 
<laughs> yeah, nice palate cleanser. Yep. Yeah. All right. So if you missed our announcement on Instagram, then you might not know that we are switching our format. So we are now going to be doing these full episodes, so episodes like this, episodes that take quite a bit of time and research and energy. We're going to be doing them every other week with um, mini-sodes in between. So we hope that you guys dig the new format. Um, we have a lot of fun with mini-sodes, or we're having a lot of fun planning out our future mini-sodes. Our next one is going to be on, actually, David's previous coming soon suggestion. You want to say what it is? Phenomena. How about that? <laughs> yes. So that's going to be uh, what comes out Monday. And after that, we'll be switching to our, our bi-weekly format. So... Thank you very much for listening. We are all over the internet. We are on Instagram at Based on a True Crime. Facebook, Based on a True Crime Podcast. And Twitter at True Crime Based. So yeah, go check us out. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play. Also streaming from directly from our website as well, based on a truecrime.com. Thanks for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, and have a nice day. <laughs> Bye-bye. Death. Oh, shit. Forgot about that. Death is but a door. Time is but a window. We'll be back. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.